I look out upon you, and I know so many of you. I know your stories. I know some of your heartache. I know some of your loneliness. I know some of your miracles. Every time I look out on you, I see resurrection stories. Now, you know I'm fond of one particular resurrection story, but... I see so many in this congregation. So much resilience, so much strength, so much love. And um, I'm going to miss you. I love you guys. I'm going to miss you. It's time. Oh, yeah, thank you. Jazz hands. <laughs> and um, you're going to be so relieved when my sense of humor is no longer here. <laughs> you're going to be like, what happened? Um, oh, oh, my God. I could, like, I could start, like, a dad joke, you know, thing for Ariana. So um, I remember when I was 18, I left Illinois, Galesburg, Illinois, and... Um, I went to North Carolina, to China Grove, North Carolina, small town, to live with my grandma. And my uncle was a minister. I have an uncle who's a minister who's famous, who's been on Oprah and stuff. But I have an uncle who was a really small-time Baptist minister, and he asked me to preach. And um, I was far from home. I was going to a college where I only knew my un another uncle who was a professor there up in the mountains in North Carolina. And my sister, like, five days earlier, four days earlier, had come to the beach. And, and when she came to see me in China Grove, um, she told me that she had lost a child. And, um, and, and then, like, four days later, he asked me to preach. I, you know, I'd never preached. But he knew I was a person of faith, and he wanted me to do it. And... Um, and I got up there, and all of it, just all of that weight, all of that heaviness came over me in that moment, and I just cried. I was just in that pulpit, and just crying, crying, crying. And I couldn't say a word. And he was like, take your time. And he let me cry, and then I started speaking. I was like, damn. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. So I hope I don't cry today. Um, but I'm going to miss you all. I, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about love. I know we're talking about gratitude, but I wanted to talk a little bit about love. Uh, in, <clears throat> in Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, which is well-worn, as you can see, I read this in African-American literature as a spiritual practice at seminary with Josiah Ulysses Young III as my teacher. When warm weather came, baby shugs holy, followed by every black man, woman, and child who, make it, who could make it through. Um, this is a group of escaped slaves and, and freed slaves up in Ohio, and um, they had been in Kentucky. And baby shugs is their spiritual leader. 
When warm weather came, baby Shug's holy, followed by every black man, woman, and child who could make it through, took her great heart to the clearing, a wide open place cut deep in the woods, nobody knew for what, at the end of a path known only to deer and whoever cleared the land in the first place. In the heat of every Saturday afternoon, she sat in the clearing while the people waited among the trees. After situating herself on a huge flat-sided rock, Baby Shugs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. So as a result of this passage, I um, have taken on the walking stick as my favorite image for the church, for the spiritual community, for the mosque, for the synagogue. Um, for chaplaincy. The walking stick, it's not going to walk for you, but it's going to be by your side. And if you get stuck, it's going to help you get out of that stuckness, right? And it's going to go on great adventures if you're willing to go on great adventures, but it's not going to tell you which adventure to go on. So that's my favorite image, and it comes from this passage. When she put her stick down, everybody knew she was ready. Then she'd shout, let the children come. And they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mothers hear you laugh, she told them. And the woods rang. The adults looked on and could not help but smile. Laughter is a sign of hope. So when you see a child laughing, you've got hope. Then she said, let the grown men come. And they stepped out one by one from the ringing trees. Let your wives and the children see you dance. Right? Powerful dance, the antelope dance. And the ground life shuddered under their feet. <clears throat> um, when they danced the, da the antelope dance, it was, a, it, was a, it was a sign of the dance they did back in Africa. It was a sign of their freedom. It was a sign of their, of their strength. And um, <clears throat> that memory cries out. Finally, she called the woman to her cry. She said, for the living and the dead, just cry. And without covering their eyes, the woman let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and then it got mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced. Women laughed. Children cried until exhausted all in each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, right, so... Baby Shugs offered up her great big heart. Speech that is spiritual, speech that is depth, comes out of the silence. That's why we make such a big deal of the silence here, that sacred silence. And what does she offer them up? Her great big heart. She did not tell them to go clean up their lives. She just didn't. She didn't tell them to go sin no more. She did not tell them they were the blessed of the earth. She told them the grace they could have was the grace they could imagine. That if they could not see it, they would not have it. Here, she said, here in this place we're flesh. Flesh that weeps and laughs. Flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder, they don't love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They pick them out. No. Love it. Love your hands. 
Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face. You've got to love it. You. You're not in love with your mouth. You love your mouth. What you say of it, they won't heed. What you scream, they don't hear. What you put into it to nourish your body, they'll snatch away. No, you've got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Flesh that needs to rest and dance. Backs that need your support. Shoulders that need arms. Strong arms, I'm telling you. Love your neck. Put a hand on it. Grace it. Stroke it. Hold it up. And all your inside parts. The dark liver. Love it. And the beat and beating heart. The beat and beating heart. Love that too. More than eyes or feet. More than lungs. More than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts. Hear me now. Love your heart. That is the prize. That is the prize. There's not one single guru that you need. There's not one doctrine that you need. There's not one scripture that you need. They don't hurt. None of those things hurt. None of those things hurt. But you are the scripture. You are the guru. Your heart is the prize. So when the monastics say, go to your cell and it will teach you everything, that means love your heart. That is the prize. That means that that heart is the story. But you say to me, I know myself all too well. I, well, maybe I just say myself to myself. I'm not going to speak for you. But if I were hearing that, I'd be like, have you spent any time in my head? Have you spent any time in my life? It's not great. It's okay. It's pretty good. But I screw up. What to do about that? <clears throat> do you know James Baldwin, the writer? Um, icon of, of justice and liberation and equality. And um, I'm not exactly sure when he was born, but I have a feeling that he was born in Harlem sometime around the Second World War, maybe before, I don't know. But um, his dad uh, was strict and um, told him that Manhattan was a horrible place, not to go to Manhattan, wouldn't let him go. James Baldwin became a street preacher. And um, as a young, young person, 13, 14 years old, he couldn't go to Manhattan, but he could be a street preacher. And, um, and he was black, and he was gay, and he struggled to um, find his way in the world based on all of that strictness. And then one time he broke. He knew that racial hatred was thriving. He believed he could prove to the world how anyone, if he so chose, could rise above it. He had discovered that if he was just worthy of being treated with dignity and respect, if he carried himself that way, that all would be well. Um, and he thought his dad was just paranoid and mean and 
that he was so not trusting. So his first year out of high school, he leaves Harlem and he goes to Jersey. And um, he went to work at a defense plant in New Jersey. And um, he, he realized in New Jersey that there were people there who didn't care um, what he did or how he acted. He just had the wrong skin color. And um, day after day, he would go to different restaurants and be told, we don't serve colored people here. We don't serve Negroes here. And, um, or he'd just be ignored. And um, he was fired from those places. And um, he decided to, to move back to Harlem. But before that, his last night in New Jersey, he went out with some friends. And um, a white friend came in from New York to treat him to dinner and a movie. And he could feel the tension of that time growing and growing. And they stopped into the American diner. And um, the counter staff person glared at Baldwin and said, we don't serve Negroes here. And um, Baldwin, who was very, very smart, and you know, sometimes smart people have mouths that get them in trouble. He mentioned that the American diner should probably be a place that serves Americans. <laughs> and um, I don't think that went over well. And um, they were kicked out. They were kicked out, and, and um, he snapped. And he went into the nicest white restaurant he could find. And um, he was going to act out. He pushed it through the doors of a swank restaurant, sat down at the first vacant table, and waited until a frightened waitress approached and said, apologetically, we don't serve Negroes here. He says, in that moment, I wanted to wrap my arms around her neck. He pretended not to hear her come closer. And instead of choking her, what he wanted to do, he threw a water pitcher at her. She, she ducked and it hit the mirror behind her. Um, as you can imagine, he was in a bit of trouble. So he runs for the door and escapes the men who had come to beat him up, basically. He... Um, his white friend from New York misdirects the police, and Baldwin escapes. He begins to relive that moment in his heart and in his mind over and over and over again. And he had to face to his own horror that he himself was ready to commit murder. He continues, I saw nothing clearly but I did see this, that my life, my real life, was in danger, and not from anything that anybody else could do to me, but from the hatred I carried in my own heart. His life was at risk. His life was at risk of ending, but not from all of the stuff, I almost said the other word, all of the stuff that was from the external, from the outside, but from 
in his own heart. So when Toni Morrison, who read James Baldwin very, very closely, when Toni Morrison says, love your heart, for that is the prize, she knows. She knows. She knows what it's like to be in the American diner. So what do we do? Right? What do we do? So I'm going to share with you what I came up with. Mostly life is like this. Sometimes life is like this. A minister friend, Meg, was invited to moderate a forum between two groups that, truth be told, would each rather the other not exist. One side spoke and shouted. The other side spoke and shouted. Words passed like light, invasive and all-encompassing, but little understood. Exhausted, the combatants turned to Meg. Have you anything to add? Meg rose. If you're in this camp, God loves you. If you're in that camp, God loves you. And she sat down. Grace abounds. Sometimes life is like this. I once went to a meeting with my, exec, my district executive in Delaware. Assuming I knew her position, I joked with her, oh yes, I'm a Unitarian Universalist Christian, but my Christology is appropriately low. What is wrong with a high Christology, she asked. Two weeks later, I learned that she had left our place for a Catholic place. Assuming I knew her position, I forgot to hear her voice. Assuming I knew her position, I forgot to invite her into conversation. Presumption abounds. Presumption abounds. But mostly, and this is the point, this is what I want to leave you with in my penultimate sermon, which thank you, Jean, for dressing up for. This is what I want to leave you with. This is what I want you when you're like, man, I remember a couple of years ago there was this goofy dude that Ariana asked to come and be our associate minister. This is what I want to leave you with. But mostly life is like this. On a Thursday afternoon, I said to the one I value and trust, should we go to the water for the day, spend some time on the bay? Yes, I think so. We drove. She sang the songs of her childhood. We watched a sunset. We heard a dog bark. The boats slowly made their way under the bridge. A Navy pilot navigated his craft. The woman at the Back Creek Inn gave us directions to a cafe where we were served wine and laughter. Life abounds. Life abounds. Your life, your resurrection story, your resilience, your wanting to murder somebody, and your loving your heart is the gospel. Everything you need to know is in your heart. Love it. Love it hard. Don't clap. No, no, no. No, it's like...
We bless you, we appreciate you, and we behold the 